1945 saw the lights go on again. Once more, the nation's capital was blazing in all its glory. And in cities throughout the nation, the blackout was ended. Germany had surrendered. The war in Europe was over. There was still a war to be fought to a finish in the Pacific. But that couldn't dim the celebration that marked the fall of Hitler and the end of his dreams of world conquest. Three months later, crowds gather in front of the White House, awaiting the announcement of Japan's surrender from President Harry S. Truman. It took two atomic bombs to bring Japan to her knees. But now Pearl Harbor was avenged, and the news triggered the greatest celebration the nation has ever known. This was the time to whoop it up. World War II is over, and the American economy is booming. One of the few countries to emerge virtually unscathed, and the only nation with nuclear weapons, the U.S. stands as a colossus. After years of drought and depression and then war, the future is bright and every American is poised to take part in the prosperity and abundance to come. Well, not everybody. Hail, hail, rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. A contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. Kurt Cobain is dead and this is the story of record industry is dead because of the fans. They killed it. Rock, rock, rock and roll. Feeling is there, body and soul. Hello everyone and welcome to Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, the story of rock podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Moore, and thank you for joining us as we explore the chronological story of rock music in relatively bite-sized segments. We'll have a new episode every other Monday. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to our show. It only takes a second to do, and it means a lot to us here. It helps us improve and make the show better. And be sure to check us out on your favorite social media platform, too, as we'll have some announcements coming out about special episodes and our new website. Also, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you with comments, corrections, or even diatribes. This is about music, after all, and few things can get more personal than your favorite band or song. So if you think we missed something or you disagree with something we've said, then please send us a message and let us know. This is history, after all. There's never just one narrative. This week is a little heavier on the history, as we need to clear the space, as it were, set the scene, and chart the landscape for the rise of rock and roll. As my grade 11 history teacher, Mr. McCall, used to say, those who fail history are condemned to repeat it. This story could really start in many places, but the end of World War II seems like as good a time as any to set out on our journey. In 1945, America is a powerhouse. The European powers and Britain are in ruins. Their economies and infrastructure so devastated it will take years, even decades, to fully recover. We'll be returning to Britain in particular in future episodes and see how this destruction and the years of rationing and shortages to follow affects the type of music that does develop there. But in 1945, things are looking pretty grim. But the USA, the only major power untouched by invasion or bombing, is thriving. War kick-started the economy and the country is firing on all cylinders. The government was worried, though. 
15 million veterans and military staff were about to return from Europe and the Pacific. There was a genuine fear that the labor market would be flooded and the economy would stall. So Congress introduced a bill in hopes of curtailing this pending disaster. A law that would change the shape of American society for generations to come. The Servicemen's Readjustment Bill of June 1944, or as it is more generally known, the GI Bill. The GI Bill guaranteed for veterans one year of unemployment, loans to start businesses or buy homes, or pay for college tuition or trade school and provide living stipends while attending. It would have a hefty price tag, by some measures approximately $50 billion today. And not everyone was keen on this idea. The president of the University of Chicago complained that education is not a device for coping with mass unemployment. Colleges and universities will find themselves converted into educational hobo jungles. But elitism aside, the bill was a huge success on many fronts. By 1947, nearly half of all college and university students were on GI Bill funding, with over 8 million veterans returning to school. Universities also saw a growing interest in sciences, business, and engineering. And despite the cost, this bill might be one of the best investments the U.S. government ever made, with all those newly educated veterans generating nearly 10 times the bill's cost in higher wages and taxes. Since the end of the 19th century, rural Americans and immigrant families had flocked to the cities for work, especially during the Depression. But it was crowded, with families doubling or tripling up in apartments and make-do Quonset huts. With higher wages and GI Bill-backed loans for homes, millions of veterans and their families started leaving the cramped apartments of the cities for their own homes in the suburbs. William J. Levitt and Sons built the first planned communities in New York, then Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Puerto Rico. Using assembly line techniques, Levitt and Sons could build a house in a day. The average monthly mortgage payment was about $29, while the average rent in New York City was about $90 a month. So the first Levitt town had 17,000 units housing 84,000 people in grid-like streets centered around swimming pools, schools, parks, and recreation centers. Each house promised modern appliances, a car in the driveway, green lawns, and white picket fences. Thus was born an American ideal that endures to this day. Between 1948 and 1958, 85% of all new homes were in the suburbs. And the suburbs also gave birth to a car culture, something we will see expressed in rhythm and blues and early rock and roll music very soon. You need a car to get anywhere to go to work or get groceries, and automobile manufacturing exploded in these years following the war, which then triggered the need for larger highways and road systems, which then meant cities and their suburbs could sprawl wider and further away, which then meant, well, you can see where this is all going. So it's all great, right? Wealth and prosperity are here, and the future is wide open. Well, not quite. While the GI Bill applied equally to black and female veterans as it did to their white male counterparts, they had difficulty collecting those benefits. The money was administered by the Veterans Association, which was closely linked to the, at the time, pro-segregation American Legion. Black veterans found themselves steered away from universities and towards vocational schools and labor positions. Universities themselves had a cap on the number of black students they admitted. And female veterans faced a similar problem. Only 19% of eligible women received aid through the GI Bill, but they overwhelmingly chose university education funding when they did. However, just as with black students, many universities had a limit on the number of women admitted each year.
and those shiny new suburbs? Even at the time, there was criticism about the cookie-cutter nature of Levittowns and their sameness and conformity. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes, all the same. There's a green one. And on one hand, one it did emphasize a sort of democratic inclusion, where all people living in the community were in similar houses, making similar incomes, whether they were Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish. And this was sort of a continuation of the national community that was built over the war amongst soldiers and civilians alike. This connection as a nation would really come into play as popular music spreads in the late 40s and 50s, as we'll see. But there was a downside to this conformity too. Women were constantly told by the culture that their role was to stay home, raise kids, and tend to their families, despite many gains made working outside the home during the war. And William Levitt was straight up an unapologetic segregationist, and the subdivisions were for whites only. By 1960, not a single non-white family lived in the New York Levitt town. Throughout the U.S., covenants were enacted to discourage selling suburban homes to black or Asian families. And at the same time, banks were refusing to lend money for inner-city homes or improvements, which were increasingly becoming minority neighborhoods. After the war, this all combined to increase the distance between white and black Americans. The growing resentment of being left out of the post-war boom will erupt in the 1950s and 60s, as we'll see in future episodes. There is one last major trend we need to discuss to set the groundwork for the birth of rock and roll before we move on to discuss the music and the technology itself, and that's the baby boom. During the Depression, the movement of families from the countryside to the cities also meant smaller family sizes. While it may once have made sense to have a lot of kids to help work the land, in the cities, large families were a burden. Then along came World War II, and couples married quickly and conceived before the husband got shipped off to fight. Following the war, the economic prosperity and possibility of homes and higher wages meant more kids were born. Between 1946 and 1964, 76.4 million babies were born, comprising an incredible whopping 40% of the U.S. population. This explosion in children led to the rise of a new segment of the population, one that had never really been considered before, the teenager. Compulsory education meant more teens were going to high school instead of going to work in factories or in the fields. And add to this the post-war prosperity that meant teens could have spending money from either their parents or part-time jobs. Throw in the growth of car culture and a sudden independence, and we have the birth of teen culture. These baby boomer teenagers will radically shape America in terms of civil rights, anti-Vietnam war protests, in films and fashion, and, most importantly for us, in music. We'll be exploring this new teenager culture in coming episodes in quite a bit of depth. As we'll see, without these teens as an audience and a market, there would likely not have been a rock music. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the landscape of post-war America. It's a strange, contradictory mix of hope and possibility for some, of denial, even resentment for others, of a constriction and conformity generally, while seeing the growth of a burgeoning rebellious subculture. This is the setting that will see the rise of a powerful youth culture and music scene that will shape the fabric of the coming decades. Next time on the show, the 
great migration from New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta will bring a new music north to St. Louis, to Chicago, and perhaps most importantly for us, to Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you everyone for joining us this week. Next time I promise lots and lots more music. I've got to let you dog me around.